Good morning, church. Welcome to the second sermon of our four-part series, Christmas in Context. If you can remember well, last week, Pastor Simon uh, preached to us the first sermon from Isaiah 42, verse 1 uh, to 9, titled, The Seventh King. And then in that sermon, we were reminded that for many people, Christmas has all kinds of associations that have nothing to do with the events that took place uh, in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Now today, as we continue thinking about the real meaning of Christmas, we move to put one of the traditional messages of Christmas under spotlight uh, so that uh, we could see whether we have understood it um, and whether it still applies to us today. The message for this morning that Faye just read for us is from Isaiah 49, verse 1 to 7, and the sermon title is The Seventh Promise of Peace at Christmas. So please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, we humbly come before your presence. It is my prayer that, Lord, you faithfully speak to us as we listen. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Many Christmas cards we receive and the carols that we sing are all about peace on earth and goodwill towards us. But as we can look back over the last months for the signs of progress of peace, you would agree with me that we have to say at first sight the evidence is not very encouraging. Internationally, many countries that we know here in Africa and outside Africa are currently at war. Nationally and domestically, there have been times of unrest politically and economically, lack of employment, xenophobic attacks and conflicts among people, demonstrations everywhere, the relentlessly undermining of peace and security of family by domestic violence, the skyrocketing of uh, the divorce rate, and the killings of people in their own homes by thugs. All these have cast a dark shadow over the peaceful ideal of the rainbow uh, nation South Africa having there. There is no peace. What has happened? Where is the peace that we so look forward to? Why is there so little peace uh, in the world and here in South Africa? Is the message of peace at Christmas just a myth? The diagnosis given in Isaiah is brief and it is to the point. And it demands our 
careful attention because it comes from the lips of God himself. We find this diagnosis in the verse immediately before the passage that Faye just read to us. Isaiah 48, verse 22, where it says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. We might have said with a smile, There is no peace for the wicked, without knowing even what these words originally mean and who originally spoke these words. And it is my prayer that this morning, God would help us understand what real peace is. Remember, last Saturday, we traced the root of all our problems to the fact that although we are made to worship, but by nature, we worship all the wrong things. And the message of that first seven song last week was that God would be sending someone to show us who we have been created to worship and why. Fast forward to this week, Isaiah 48 verse 22 prepares us for our passage by giving us some fresh information. It is saying that in the meantime, while we persist in worshiping all these other wrong things and not putting God first in our lives, we will have no peace. The absence of this peace in the life of the unbeliever matters so much to God that he gives us his diagnosis twice in the last part of Isaiah. He gives it once at the end of chapter 48, verse 22, and then he repeats it again at the end of chapter 57, in verse 21. Let me mention that in the Bible, that kind of repetition is a writing style showing us that everything in between the repeated statement is somehow addressing that issue. And here, in between these two pronouncements from God, we have three of the seven songs in Isaiah chapter 49, chapter 50, and chapter 52. And when we put the message of these seven songs together, we find the best Christmas gift we could ever have. Because instead of washing his hands of us, instead of wanting nothing more to do with us, as people who persist in worshiping all wrong things and hence deserving no peace, God is offering the peace we have lost, the peace we so desperately need, and he is offering it through the ministry of his servant. So there is nothing more urgent for any of us this Christmas than responding to the servant's ministry of peace with God described so clearly in these seven songs. As we look at Isaiah 
49 verse 1 to 7 today. Let us remember what Pastor Simon mentioned last week about the structure of all the seven songs. He mentioned that each song follows the same pattern. It begins by telling the reader something about the servant and what he will do, and then immediately gives a comment from God on how all this will happen. So the seventh song of Isaiah chapter 49, verse 1 to 7, follows that structure where the writer first tells, tells us about the servant in verses 1 to 6, and then gives God's comment from verses 7 to 13. This morning, we will look at three characteristics of the servant's ministry that I'm sure will sharpen our understanding of the peace that God is offering to each of us this Christmas. These characteristics are the three points for our sermon today. The servant's calling, the servant's conquest, and the servant's command. Let us begin with our first point. The servant's calling. In the first song of Isaiah 42, you may remember that it was God who introduced his servant. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, God says, Here is my servant, whom I abhorred, my chosen one, in whom I delight. But now, in this second song, the servant introduces himself. So verses 1 to 6 of Isaiah chapter 49 are the servant's personal testimony. He introduces himself in this unique way. Verse 1. Listen to me, you islands. Hear these, you distant nations. That phrase, listen to me, does not appear anywhere in the Old Testament outside Isaiah. And Isaiah only ever uses this phrase when he is referring to God himself. So it is no accident that in the Gospels, whenever Jesus has something especially important to say to his disciples, he grabs their attention by saying, listen to me, be careful how you listen, in other words. It is the same phrase the servant uses here. But in Isaiah 49, the servant is not addressing his disciples. He is speaking to the whole world, the islands and the nations. So what he is about to say is a message for everybody, including you and me. But what is that message that the servant wants to give to everybody? Verse 1b answers. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my birth, 
he has mentioned, made mention of my name. So, the first thing the servant tells us is that he didn't take on this ministry himself. He didn't push himself forward. Not at all. The Lord called him before he was born. Just think of the excitement that a couple and their relatives have for them when they know that they are expecting their first baby. I'm sure Michael would, would understand this Peter. No doubt, in the next months, there is usually regular visits to the hospital uh, so that the experts can check that the baby is all right. Isn't that the case? So this text has a concept of antenatal care. But verse 1 takes antenatal care to a whole new level. The servant is telling us that even from his earliest moment in his mother's womb, his whole life was fully planned and prepared for him. How do we know that? Because his name had already been chosen. The servant tells us that from my birth, he has made mention of my name. We need to pause on this for a moment. Because in Israel's culture, a person's name described their nature and calling. Think of this in English as having a name pastor that explains a particular occupation and the calling of that person. So in verse 1, by telling us that his name had already been decided, the servant is preparing us for the events of an extraordinary night 700 years later. Please turn to Matthew chapter 1 from verse 20 with me. The page number should be 680 of the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 1 from verse 20. Church Bible should be page 680. From verse 18, the text reads, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. And in verse 20, the text further reads, But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. 
And you will notice that there is a footnote next to the name Jesus uh, in the church Bibles that at the bottom of the page tells us Jesus is a Greek form of the name, which name? Joshua, which means the Lord saves. So centuries before it happened, we are told that the servant's ministry will be to bring peace to the wicked by saving them from their sins. Now, come back to our passage in Isaiah chapter 49. In verse 2, the servant tells us how God will equip him for his calling. It reads, He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. Obviously, the goal of Jesus' mission was the cross, if we read Isaiah chapter 53. But what this verse is saying is that until that moment, Jesus' ministry will focus not on his miracles, but on his speech. The miracles will be important, but when the servant comes, his main ministry will be God's spokesman. But clearly, his words are not going to be easy for us or for his listeners to hear. Because using a fairly striking image, we are told that God will equip him with a mouth, a mouth like what? Like a sharpened sword. A sharpened sword is not a cutting knife that we use to cut chicken for our brats or, or for supper. No. This sharpened sword was a serious weapon of war. With one of these in his hand, a skilled soldier could cut another soldier in half. With this image, the servant is giving us a picture of the impact that the word or his word will have whenever and wherever it is faithfully taught. And that is precisely what happened. Remember from our recent series in Acts, when Peter preached his first sermon after Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 tells us the following. When the people heard Peter's message about Jesus, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Notice this. The first step towards having my sins or your sins forgiven and finding peace with God is that God's word cuts into me. It opens me up to reveal who I really am. And it is not a pretty picture that comes out. When I'm cut, disobedience flows everywhere. This cutting work 
is absolutely vital. Think of it as a surgery that ensures real healing can begin. There can be no peace without it. But there is more. The servant father tells us in verse 2 that God made him into a polished arrow. The shaft of a polished arrow was so well prepared that nothing could deflect it from his target. One writer tells the story of a thief who was trying to escape from the police uh, in ancient times. The thief ran out of the door of the courthouse, closing it behind him to act as a shield. But a soldier, a policeman, fired an arrow which traveled through the wooden door and through the thief, killing him on the spot. So the image the servant uses here is telling us that the word of God has the power to penetrate the defenses of our fallen humanity with accurate accuracy, like deadly accuracy. It is accurate, precise, to the point. So what is the point of all this? The point is that, as it is a tradition, this Christmas, many people come to church for their annual visit. They will arrive believing that they can sit in judgment on God's word. But as they hear the Bible being read, or the sermon being preached, some of them will feel to their surprise that actually God's word is judging and speaking to them. But maybe it is not some people we are to talk about. It may be you who are present in this room. As you listen to the sermon, are you perhaps hearing Jesus asking, have you loved the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength? Have you? And are you perhaps, as you keep on listening to the sermon, realizing that you have been in church but haven't really loved him? As the sermon continues, Maybe you may be hearing the question, have you had your sins forgiven? And you know that you haven't. So, as the sermon may continue, you may keep on feeling uncomfortable or relent uh, uh, restless, maybe. As the word goes even further, you may become angry because you know that one day you will stand before God and you ask you why did you not come to me to have your sins forgiven if all this has already gone through your mind or is happening now or it will happen as we proceed know that the servant is calling you he is calling you 
to come to God through him. And you need to respond. The question we might ask, however, is, will the servant's calling succeed? This takes us to our second point. The servant's conquest. One of the reasons people put off making a personal response to God is because they look at the institution of the church and so often it looks very unimpressive. As far as they can see, there seems to be so much unrest and disagreements inside the church as there is outside. So although they have heard the word of God, they do not do anything with it. And because they do not do anything with it, in the end, their curiosity is pushed out completely altogether. But that is not surprise, surprising. Because scripture is very open about the fact that the ministry of God's word always produces mixed results. In the most famous parable he ever taught, the parable of the sower, Jesus himself, tells us very clearly that although God's word always produces a bumper harvest, 75% of the seed will be wasted. 75% of the effort will produce nothing. And that picture of mixed results is reintroduced again in our seventh song, but in the most unexpected way. We might think that having planned the seventh ministry so far ahead of time and in such detail that his ministry would be 100%, wouldn't we? So, we are completely unprepared for the shock that the servant assessment brings in verse 4, which says, But I said, I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. We were not expecting that, were we? Can it really be that the servant of the Lord will think his ministry has been a waste of time. Has it been for no purpose? In vain? And for nothing? But of course, in the New Testament, the New Testament shows us that the response to Jesus among his own people was often very disappointing, if you can remember well. In the introduction to the gospel, uh, to his gospel, John summarizes the ministry of Jesus like this. He came to that which was his, referring to Israel, but his own did not receive him. Remember, Luke mentions that while he was in Galilee, Jesus' ministry headquarters was in a very specific area 
Capernaum. There he performed some of the most spe spectacular miracles the world has ever seen and preached the most brilliant sermon the world has ever heard. And after all that hard work, what would we expect? I think we would expect a revival of spiritual interests and lots of people training for ministry, wouldn't we? But although the people were amazed by or at everything Jesus said and did, they never did anything with it, personally. Most of them never repented. And in the end, Jesus compared them to the most evil city in Scripture, the city of Sodom. He warned them that on that day of judgment, the people of Sodom would even have a much easier time than them. On that day, their religious privileges would be of no use because they had done nothing with them. Their religious rights did not lead them to finding the real peace. So verse 4 is a very accurate prediction. There were many times when Jesus' ministry in Israel seemed to have been a complete failure. So did God have a plan for that situation? Look with me in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. It says, It is too a small thing for you to be my servant, to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. So God's response to the problem of unbelief in Israel is global mission. The servant's rejection in Israel will be the catalyst that takes God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And will that be any more successful? Look with me in verse 7. At the end of verse 7, it reads, Kings will see you and rise up. Let's, let's continue. Let's read that part together. Princess will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you you couldn't have a bigger contrast in Israel the servant will be rejected by his own people but outside Israel even the world's most powerful men the princes, the kings, will bow down to him. And 300 years later, that prophecy began to be fulfilled when the emperor Constantine 
found peace with God and Christianity began, began to grow or be, by beginning to, it was announced as the official religion in the entire Roman Empire. And it is still being fulfilled today every time someone accepts Jesus as their personal and savior. Remember that you and me are not Israelites. Are we, are we Israelites? We are Gentiles who have been made to become the children of God. Isn't that an amazing truth? But take note of something here. The servant's conquest will only be fully and finally complete when Jesus returns on that day. As Paul tells us, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. For many people, that will be the best day of all. Every true Christian is looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face. But the question this morning for you is, are you one of those looking forward to that day? But for others, it will be a terrible day because having refused to accept God's offer of peace during their lifetime, they will discover that they have forfeited peace in eternity. But by then, it will be too late. So what is to be done? What must we do to secure this promise of peace that so many people are seeking but never seem to find? Please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, on page 817, as we consider our third point, the servant's command. Second Corinthians, chapter 5, verse 18, on page 817. Second Corinthians 5, verse 18 reads, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sin against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. So friends, through the death of Jesus, God has dealt with our sin and our foolish worship. He no longer counts our sin against us. Now he is offering us the peace with him 
that was impossible before. But we may ask the question, what qualifies Jesus as the instrument for God to use to bring peace to us? According to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus is the prince of peace, who when his disciples were troubled and afraid after his death, to the point of locking themselves in the upper room, this prince of peace walked in the closed doors and said, Peace be upon you. Also, when the disciples were troubled with the raging sea, as recorded in Mark chapter 4, verse 39, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Peace be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. But take note of this. This peace may be in the stillness, as it was quiet with the waves, but it is way beyond that. One writer Leon Morris rightly defines peace like this. Peace means the defeat of evil. Peace means breaking down the barrier between man and God. Peace means the presence of God's rich and abundant blessing. Peace is not the absence of anything. Peace is presence. The presence of God. Christ is our peace. Friends, peace is Jesus. There was peace in the storm because peace himself, as a human, Jesus, was present. And now God is giving his peace to you and me through Jesus. God is giving you and is giving me, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Isn't that special? We, however, must accept him. It takes two to be reconciled. God is offering him and we are to accept him. What have you done with him? What have you done with all the messages you have been listening to about him over the years? Paul says there's only one response. Be reconciled to God. It is interesting, if we continue to read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1, it reads as the following. As God's fellow worker, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor I heard you, and in the day of salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. The quotation in 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, verse 2, and then 2 Corinthians chapter 6, also verse 2, connects to Isaiah 49, verse 8. In the original context, it is God's confirmation that in spite of some surprising setbacks, the seventh ministry will succeed because all of God's power and authority is in it. As the servant goes out with the word, God will be listening and helping. And Paul quotes it to warn men and women in Corinth to be reconciled to God while the offer of reconciliation still stands. The offer is not open-ended. Like many churches in Cape Town and Africa today, the Corinthian church has tremendous spiritual privileges. By God's grace, as Paul is speaking to them, they have heard the gospel from the lips of the apostle Paul, and the gospel has come to them as it is coming to you today with all power and authority from God. It was a sharpened sword to them that shows the reality of the situation between them and God, just as it is showing to us today. In that sense, when we first heard and understand the gospel, we have received God's grace that comes to us. But the time to be reconciled with God, the time to find peace with God is now. It is not later. Please don't put it off. Many of us come to church and hear God's word. We understand it, but we choose to not respond personally and surrender our lives to God. The calling for this morning from the seventh song is that when I choose to not respond positively to this word, I have received God's word and God's grace in vain. But the call for you and me this morning is to say, listen to that call that God is giving to you now through the Prince of Peace and then come to him. Commit to him because it is only when you have that close and connected relationship with him that you may have real peace and real peace that starts now until the ends of the earth. May the Lord continue speaking to you about the seven peace. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Father, we come before your presence this morning. In stillness, 
we acknowledge who you are. We thank you that you could send your son, Jesus Christ, the servant whom you knew, you would use to bring the world, including us, to yourself. You knew that the servant would be denied. The servant ministry would not just be accepted, but you still offered him to us. We pray that you help each one of us respond positively to the call that the servant is giving to us this morning. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.